Hi, this is Jennifer Beam, and I'm the executive leader with the Women in Leadership Group at Team Health. And today I am pleased to introduce you to uh, Sarah Sinclair, who is the owner of Now Consulting. And she is an accomplished healthcare executive who's had more than 35 years of experience in hospitals and health systems. She has a BSN in nursing and a master's in business with a focus in healthcare from Loyola University. She is really thought of as a change agent and leader with heart, and her commitment to developing leaders for the future was enhanced by receiving coaching certification in 2002 from the Hudson Institute. She's also a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives, and she has worked as a consultant and a coach within Team Health for over six years, coaching physicians and business leaders who are transitioning into leadership positions or expanding their roles into broader responsibilities. She has also facilitated leaders as they build their teams through team building days, personality assessments, and helping them to set strategy for their areas of responsibility. I personally have had the pleasure to know Sarah for the past 10 years, both in her role as a healthcare executive and most recently as a coach to some of our physician and business leaders in the West region of Team Health. I have seen firsthand the impressive results that she has been able to accomplish through her coaching, and we're very excited to uh, have her talk to us a little bit about um, three areas today. Our interview with Sarah is going to cover uh, three areas, including emotional intelligence, skills competency, and the, what it means to be a results-oriented leader. So with that, I will let Sarah uh, take over, and we'll get into our first uh, topic on emotional intelligence. Thank you. Jennifer, thank you so much for that introduction. And you folks are really very fortunate to have Jennifer as a part of the work that you're doing for women in leadership. The first area I'm going to talk about is emotional intelligence. And what it really is, is leadership uh, level of awareness. Uh, It's how we handle ourselves and how we manage ourselves and demonstrate behaviors that show respect for others. Uh, I have a book that I use quite a bit in my coaching called Smart is Not Enough by Kenton Hill, and it speaks in there about how really smart people can often get themselves into trouble in leadership by not being in tune with their own emotions and being very reactionary instead of thoughtful. Now, I'll have to tell you, most of us have a hot button of things that we know have the potential to set us off. But if we are aware and control those, we begin to gain the credibility as a person that demonstrates consistent behavior even in times of stress and chaos. And pretty much all of health care has some challenges and stress, as you all know. Now, when you think about emotional intelligence, there are four quadrants. The first one is about being aware of yourself. How do you come across? How do you present as a leader? What does my behavior look like? How do I sound? What's my nonverbal communication? The second area is about, okay, now I know how I come across, and I may have some areas of challenge, how do I manage those? I think most of us have heard of the amygdala hijack, and 
This is where when our buttons get pushed, that emergency alarm goes off and our limbic system takes over and it wants us to either leave, fight, or just freeze in place. And we sometimes during that uh, particular period can act a bit irrational and say or do things that they can't always be undone and they can certainly impact our leadership and our ability to interact with others in the future. The third quadrant is about what we call other awareness. How do we come across and interact with others? And there's two real components to this. The first one is empathy, and the second one is putting what the other person is saying or doing in the context of their world. We all know what empathy means, but It's about getting inside another person's head and understanding how they arrived at some of the things they're saying and and the logic of what they're saying and listening to them and giving yourself the space to see that maybe they got something of worthwhile to listen to. If you immediately write them off as nuts and stop listening, then you will lose from an empathetic perspective. If you look at context, context has two parts to it. The first one is the business context. Who in the organization has the authority to make decisions? Uh, Is the organization more formal, more informal? Uh, What is the emphasis of outcomes in meetings? What is the structure? Who needs to be included in things that you do and say? And who can you exclude without it offending someone? The interpersonal context has to do with really watching people. I ask my folks that I coach to find a person in your organization that you really admire, the way they hold themselves, the way they interact with others, the language that they use, and try to role model after that person. The fourth quadrant is, okay, now you kind of know how you come across and you're being sensitive to other people. How do you manage those on a consistent basis? And it's really about paying attention to their reaction to you. Now, we all know that insight in and of itself does not lead to lasting change. So it means we've got to manage that, and there are ways that you can do that so that you are consistently managing yourself and you're consistently managing the way you interact with others. So, Sarah, I have a question. Um, Now that we know what we need to be doing to assess ourselves and know that we need to be trying to manage our emotions, do you have some recommendations um, on specific actions we can take to better develop that? Well, actually, there's a number, Jennifer, and when I'm working with a client, I try to get to their specific needs, and a lot of that is based on some assessments that we go through. But a priority one that I would suggest is that you take care of yourself first because we know that when we are not taking care of ourselves, any amount of stress has the opportunity to trigger our hot button. So I would say adequate sleep, Try to get some exercise, and I'm not saying every day, but do it as often as you can for as long a period as you can to release some of that tension and stress. And then, of course, nutrition, healthy eating. We're in the healthcare business. So those three areas, sleep, exercise, and nutrition, are incredibly important. 
There's also the area of managing your relationships outside work. You know, we it's not going to work if you go home and scream at the kids or have uh, interactions with your spouse or significant other that uh, doesn't have a good result and think that you can come into work and flip a switch and you're all of a sudden going to become a really nice person. So use those outside relationships kind of as a laboratory to practice some of the things that you're learning around managing yourself. Uh, there are some others, if you'd like to hear them. Uh, one of the things that is very helpful for someone that knows they're trying to improve their interactions with others is to ask a trusted friend who attends some of the same meetings or the same settings to give you feedback. And just I would say, Jennifer, you know, I'm really working on my habit of interrupting people or challenging people when I don't agree with them. So would you do me a favor and after every meeting, let's just do a little two to three minute debrief on how I'm coming across because I really want to get better at this. Uh, and that that is extremely helpful. The other thing is we all have a tendency to pack our calendars so tight. And for you folks that are working in team health, and many of you do have to travel from place to place, uh, it's, it's not an easy task to manage your calendar. But if we allow other people to just keep putting things on our calendar and not learn when to say no, that that is something that I cannot take on unless I don't do something else, then we will have these calendars that show that we have 10 or 15 things spinning in the air and none of them getting resolved. And setting priorities on that calendar is what's more urgent to do. Uh, and I do have a book that I recommend for that called The Five Choices of the Extraordinary Productivity, which was created by Franklin Covey's work around time management, which I recommend for some folks. Probably the easiest thing we can do is when someone comes at us and they've set off a hot button Remember the amygdala, we want to make sure that our our brain checks in and we're not letting the emotional side take over, but the more logical side, pause, just simply pause. I know it's very hard for people who have a tendency to actively react, but to just pause, take a, breath, a, a breath, think about some options of how you might respond before you do, and then respond. Um, you know, and, and the one other thing that I have told, been told by a number of folks in, that I coach has been a game changer for them. If someone's coming at you with a comment that's offensive or that sets your button off, ask a question. It allows your brain time to engage and allows you to reflect and listen by asking the question that other person cannot become more defensive and then the disagreement escalates from there. So it's about engaging your brain through a solid question, one that you sincerely want to know the answer to. And I certainly could give you examples of that if there's any interest. But emotional intelligence truly is the great differentiator for great leaders. 
Thank you, Sarah. I know personally I have uh, practiced the pause technique many times myself and also the use of asking a question and find that to be very helpful. And I, I know several others who have too. So all of those that you shared with us, all of those tips uh, as to how to minimize the emotionally charged moments are very helpful. So thank you. Uh, Sarah's talked now about um, how we need to know ourselves and manage ourselves and our emotional intelligence, but she's going to address now a little bit more on how you need to develop the skills uh, for your job, and particularly in potentially a new position or a new job. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I think we've all heard the statement, fake it till you make it. I've probably used that in a couple of positions throughout my career myself because I would take a position where um, I wasn't really sure what was expected. But that's kind of a a bold move to use that on a long-term basis. The real question is if you've been promoted into a new role and you know a lot about the role, but you know there are some things you do not know then it's your responsibility, not necessarily your boss's, but your responsibility to understand better what you don't know and learn those things in order to meet the expectations. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, I suggest the first 90 days you really invest a lot of time and energy in learning your new role and your new organization. It starts with your boss. Your boss has some expectations for you in this new role, and probably you received a job description with some skills competencies that were defined, and I highly recommend that you review that frequently to make sure that you have those skills. When I go into a new organization, one of the easiest ways to learn it is to review minutes and agendas. What have they been talking about? What's been on their list of priorities over the last several months. If you're in a hospital setting, talk to other department leaders that intersect with your department and get their insights on the organization at large, what's the culture like. Probably the first place to start is the people in your own department. Talk to them. Ask them how things are working now, what is working well, what is not working so well, This has a double uh, important uh, outcome, and that is that you're actually building relationships with those folks and gaining their support for you as a leader because people want to be heard. They've been there long before you got there, and they know what is working and what is not working. Review data. Any reports on the department, whether it's quality outcomes or financial metrics or sales or business development, whatever your area of expertise is, find out the data. The data drives outcomes. And read. If if you know there's an area that you're not particularly strong in, like how do you run meetings, how do you set agendas, how do you inspire people, how do you set vision, find books on those topics and read them. Uh, See what other people that do the same job. So call a colleague that has a similar role and say, talk to me about this. How do you do this? Um, And the other thing I highly recommend, and I talked about it a little bit earlier, is finding someone in the organization that's willing to be a mentor for you. 
A mentor is a powerful person in your career and your life. I've had several throughout my career, and I have been a mentor to several people throughout my career. And they are wonderful in supporting you and helping you gain the skills that you need to do your job. And, of course, I could always say, as Jennifer was noting earlier, I could coach you as well. And she would do a very good job of it, too. So appreciate that. <laughs> um, coaching as an option, too. Uh, Sarah, after you've done the analysis, how do you go about developing a plan to fill the knowledge gap that you have found? Well, I, I say formalize it. I mean, a lot of people just sort of fly by the seat of their pants. They know they need to learn this, but it's, they're going to do it next week or next month. I say formalize it, put it on a piece of paper with timelines and expected outcomes of when you'll be able to demonstrate this particular skill um, and get the support of your boss in that process. It may require, for example, I had someone who really felt they didn't understand the financial reports. They were clinical. And I said, spend time with your finance partner. Uh, go over financial reports. Understand their language. And conversely, if you are in the business or financial area, find a clinical partner that's willing to help you understand more about what you do in a clinical setting. So formalize it with timelines expected outcomes, and how will you know when you can demonstrate the skill? What would be an example of what you would be able to do uh, when you have the skills that you're being asked to deliver on? There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know, or I'm not familiar with that, or I'm not very good at that. Can you help me? Humble pursuit of knowledge is truly a strength in leadership. So then after you've uh, done your analysis and you've put together a plan to try to address those knowledge gaps and you've hopefully been successful in doing that, how do you focus on more long-term, continual skill development? You know, Jennifer, I really recommend that people join organizations and that they network within those organizations, whether for like myself, the American College of Healthcare Executives, physician leadership executive groups, uh, the, uh, the American College of Healthcare Executives has an arm of physician leaders as well as administrative and business. It even has one for people like myself that are now in coaching and consulting. So find those organizations that support what you want to do. The most important thing is that you will be continually asked to do new things that you may not have done before. And it's always nice to have network of people from organizations both inside and outside of, of the uh, hospital or department where you work to help you gain that next level of expertise. Uh, you'd be surprised. To me, one of the greatest gifts in leadership is continual learning. And as you continue to learn and create new ways of doing things and observe people that you admire as role models, your confidence is just going to grow. And it will show as executive presence, and Jennifer, you are a prime example of executive presence, where when you walk into a room, 
people notice that you are very comfortable with knowing your job and knowing what to do, and then that's when you get the next opportunity to grow into another position. Thank you, Sarah. And and uh, I think we've talked now about knowing yourself and knowing your emotional assessment or emotional intelligence and how to assess that, and then developing the skills that you need to do your job. But how do you package that? How do you put it all together to operationalize it and, and get results that you're striving for? Well, Jennifer, it's uh, I'm, I'm probably the prime example of someone who is has been known as a change agent most of my career. And what does that mean? It means that I'm a results-driven kind of person. And I'd like to call this section kind of a bias for action, an eagerness, if you will, to take on initiatives and drive for results and outcomes. Um, I love the quote that Jesse Jackson says, if my mind can conceive it and my heart can believe it, I know I can achieve it. So being in leadership and, and being able to grow your career basically says that you have this passion for results and you infuse in that passion a sense of urgency in everything you do. And it starts by articulating a vision. Where are we going? What is the direction? What matters? And then as you begin to have people understand that bigger picture, how do you set the priorities that need to be put in place in order to develop and execute a plan around the certain desired outcomes? And those outcomes are defined by your organization. Uh, you can have some in a department that are department-specific. You can have some that, that are in the hospital that are hospital-specific. And then you'll have some that are at a much larger level, which are team health-specific. But by understanding those, setting priorities around those, and getting some plans in place, you have a better chance of getting there. Vision and strategy without action. How many times have you heard a leader talk the talk but people behind their backs are saying, they just don't get much done. You don't want to be known as someone who isn't getting results. It's interesting, throughout my career, I've probably sat through at least a dozen strategic planning sessions. And at that time, the organizations come together and they bring all of the key stakeholders and they put them in this giant room around tables to kind of set the direction for where the company's going for the next two years, three years, five years. It varies based on the company and, and what, uh, what product or service they deliver. But I have found in every one of those cases that the next couple of years after a huge strategic planning process, the organization outperforms any time prior to that. And the reason why is because people got engaged. They understood where they were going and what role each little person or each little department played in the bigger picture. And that's how they were able to drive those results. So the bottom line is set the direction and the vision, communicate it as broadly as you can to the organization, create the strategies that are going to begin to de develop the outcomes, 
build those actions around those strategies, the most important thing you can probably do is put someone in charge of every single aspect of things that you want to have happen um, and create a charter around those actions so that it's very clear as to what's being asked of the people you put in charge and then hold them accountable, not because you want to drive or push them but because you want to be there for some regular check-ins on their progress. And sometimes they'll get off course a little bit and you need to do a course correction. You don't want to wait until the very end of something. So it's really about developing results through people and process. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about a charter, what would go into it, how you create one? Sure. And I've, I've, used a number of different models, Jennifer, uh, and you can create one that works for whatever the business that you're uh, developing a program or an action around, but oh, there should be at the top of it an overarching statement that says, this team has been created to do what? And fill in the blank. It should have the name of the leader right there at the top. Who's being held accountable to drive the results? Uh, then it should have Goals or outcomes very well defined that are measurable and that they make sense to people and that they're, they're doable. It needs to have the members who are the various stakeholders that touch a piece of this process that you're trying to, to drive results on and have them at the table or have a regular communication pathway to them. Set your milestones and your timelines. Uh, if there are resources that are needed that you don't have available to you, that needs to be defined right there and get the support for that from your boss. And then the last thing is who has the decision, to, uh, the authority to make decisions around certain actions that might be uh, presented during the process of getting these results. Those are just a few of the examples. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. What... Um, what can get in the way of generating the results that are desired? Well, there's a number. <laughs> um, being a bit of a perfectionist myself, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring up two that kind of are married to the perfectionistic personality. And the first one is micromanaging. Uh, getting too much in the weeds and not letting people who have the skills and talent do what you're asking them to do. There's a big difference between checking in and giving them their support versus believing that they need more from you than they do. What happens when, that, when you do that is people uh, lose interest in things because they think you don't trust them. And the other area is fear of delegation and empowerment uh, of your team. Uh, Personally, I became a pro at delegation, and it is the one thing that I say a leader must develop if they aspire to grow to higher levels of leadership, because you cannot do it all. You have to rely on other people through the processes that we talked about before to let them do their work. So those are, those are a couple of areas around uh, you know, perfectionism. Another area is, you know, you get a bright, new, shiny idea and you think, boy, we want to do this. 
but you don't put enough time and energy into it on the front end to understand the implications. And then when it starts to derail, you lose interest in it and move to the next new shiny item. So take the time on the front end to understand what it is through that charter, because the charter will drive you to really put down what you expect to happen and who needs to be at the table and how the decisions are going to get made, those kind of things. That said, another area in that same context is some people just do paralysis by analysis. I mean, they just feel like they have to have more data before they can get started, more data, more data. And and at the end of the day, they never get started because there's never going to be enough. And sometimes just get enough to get moving, and you can always modify that as more information comes in. That that is another area. Uh, Procrastination can really uh, hurt a results-oriented person if they put off something they don't really want to do until the timeline is running out, and then it, it, it marginalizes their results. It's not as good as it could have been if they had a very methodical approach to getting things done. Um, failure to get buy-in. Who needs to be on your side before you start a major initiative? Uh, make sure you're touching base with people that it's going to impact if they're outside of your department and that they are either involved in the process or they have a communication link to you. Uh, One of the biggest things I think, uh, we said it earlier, when you build the outcomes on your charter, make sure they're measurable and they're doable. People get discouraged when you set the goals so high that they know they can't meet them, and so they sort of give up on even getting involved, and and so that that can get in the way as well. Sometimes if you're asking a team to work together, you really need to know the team. Uh, Is there a competitive person? Is there a person that's going to sabotage the ownership? Uh, Do they work well together and support each other? If it's a really big project, you probably need to do a little bit of team building on the front end so that they learn what's expected in terms of supporting your overall project, process, outcome, whatever you want to call it, so that the team is not getting in the way of the results that you want. Um, And then the last item I would say is expect the unexpected. And the only way you're going to do that is to go through an exercise on the front end that says, if this, then this. If this were to happen, how would it impact what we're doing? If this were to happen, how would it impact what we're doing? It may never happen, but if you don't go through some major elements of trying to consider what could happen, then you're very disappointed and frustrated when things get in the way. It can be external to the organization, i.e. the reimbursement changes. That's a big what if. Um, the, um, the medical record, if you don't have one, if, if it doesn't go live when it's supposed to, I talked to someone just today who's uh, their go live on a big major uh, electronic medical director's been de- uh, record has been delayed by two to three months, and that's going to impact what they were trying to accomplish in their emergency department. So think about those kinds of things that can get in the way. And then the very last, but probably the most important of all, is celebration. Don't drive people to the end 
and then fail to celebrate. Celebrate little tiny milestones. Congratulate people on successes of pieces of a project and process as you're going along because it keeps them excited about being a part of it uh, each step of the way. And at the end of the day, inspiration and aspiration, it's just a start. Action is what takes you across the finish line. So create your plan, carve out the time, focus on the end results and the goal in sight, and then just have a big celebration when you succeed. Thank you so much, Sarah. This information is so powerful, and you really cannot underestimate the positive results you can get from focusing on each of these areas, emotional intelligence, skill competency, and results-oriented leadership. They are just so powerful, and, and our ability to develop those within ourselves um, are something that you're, you're sharing your knowledge with and is very much appreciated. I know I, I mentioned on the start welcome. that I've seen firsthand the results that you've uh, achieved with folks that you have coached, and I know how much of a change agent you have been. So I really appreciate you sharing that expertise with us today and truly appreciate your time, your insights, and the very practical action-oriented tips you just gave all of us. And I think we all can benefit from that and very much appreciate your time. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jennifer. It was my pleasure, and hello to all my friends out there.